karma or cause and effect. This is a twin doctrine to reincarnation. In fact, without the working of this law in evolution, there wouldn't be any reincarnation. But then there wouldn't be anything else either. For this law of cause and effect is the balancing factor in all life. It is because of this law that creation is possible. Most people in the West have a very strange idea about karma. Sometimes their ideas are almost absurd. They think about it as fate, something in the nature of punishment for sins. They say, oh, there's no use my trying to do anything about it. It's my karma. Well, that's nonsense, of course, with all due respect. A simple logical explanation of karma would amount to just this. If you put your finger into a fire, it'll get burned, and you will suffer the pain. Well, surely that's straightforward enough for anybody. The fire doesn't have any desire to hurt you or your finger. It doesn't even know you or your finger. But the nature of fire is to burn, to consume, to break down the physical structure of that with which it comes into contact. If you, either through ignorance or foolhardiness, choose to ignore that fact, then the consequences are inevitable. Don't bother to ask the fire to be merciful or to forgive you. The fire has no mercy or forgiveness or lack of either. If you don't break the laws of energy connected with these elements, you don't suffer the consequences. If you do, you do. Even if you break the law by accident, like falling into the fire, you have still broken the law, and the outcome is the same. When you have attained to a, a reasonable state of self-mastery, you don't have accidents. And so you don't break the law, wittingly or unwittingly. But this as you can readily see, has got nothing whatsoever to do with reward or punishment. If you want to use that word, better say, we are punished by our sins or foolishness, not for them. Now, in our scheme of things, in physical life, the very first manifestation of this law of karma comes at our birth. Remember, at uh, the end of the talk on reincarnation, we said that the thinker would choose the circumstances of its birth, the parents and the life environment, before it incarnated. Well, the thinker would choose them because they would give him something that he needed, because they would be the ones to provide him with the necessary experience to help him overcome some defect of character, perhaps some weakness that was preventing a fuller expression of the deity within. Well, this is exactly cause and effect at work.
The cause is the weakness or the defect or the need in the thinker. The effect is the circumstance of birth. Whatever it may be that is necessary to remedy that need. We could see this a little more clearly, perhaps, if the circumstances we are considering could be a little more dramatic. For instance, if the thinker in past lives has had a weakness of character which has made it impossible for him to accept help and love from other people, well, he might well choose to incarnate into a weak or crippled body or even one which has a defective brain that would attract to him in that life those who had a great desire to love and to help him. Mind you, such a body, bearing in mind the complete lack of memory in the physical brain, such a body would cause this proud and independent thinker to chafe and to fret. But nevertheless, he would be forced to accept kindness and help and love from others, being unable to fend for itself. And in this way, sooner or later, it would learn the lesson of humility, how to take from others with a quiet good grace. Perhaps such a lifetime, viewed through earthly eyes and limited understanding, might appear to be a dreadful waste. But in fact it would be of immense value to the soul concerned. Far more often than we realize. Hardships, difficulties, handicaps, frustrations are the direct result of this law of cause and effect. And such is the inherent wisdom in this law that in the case that we've just talked about, for instance, our thinker in his crippled or handicapped body, he would also at the time of birth be drawn to a family in which one or more of the members needed the life experience of loving and caring for such a helpless soul. Perhaps to remedy some past defect in their characters. Which could be done through all the difficulties and emotional upheavals attendant upon such a life. In this way, two or more thinkers would be working out their karma together. And eventually this would forge a bond between them, a karmic bond that would never be broken. Often, whole groups of souls are brought together time and time again, sharing experiences, good and bad. In this way, growing closer and closer every time. One could ask about this, well, how does a soul know which family to choose? 
how does it know what the possibilities in any forthcoming life will be? And the answer is quite simple. They're helped. They're guided in their choice by very wise and progressed minds. Spiritually evolved beings who have progressed beyond the need of earthly experience themselves. But who are only too happy to help their lesser brethren in the search for understanding. These beings, progressed as they are, are able to assess the possibilities in any situation or in any person or group of persons because they can read in the Akashic record the past histories of spiritual attainments or developments in those persons or groups. And from that, they can then deduce or predict to a markedly accurate degree what's most likely to happen in that life or that family under any given circumstances. If the thinker needs a body that is deformed, or a brain that is defective, then these guides, as we can call them, will direct him to the type of parents whose union is most likely to produce such a body or brain, just what he needs. There isn't any great mystery at work here. Just ordinary logic and common sense. But then, you see, the absolute in all its manifestations is extreme logic and common sense. Until it's expressed through the developing intellect in man, that is, then quite often it becomes most illogical and totally absurd. And apropos of that, man, because of his great intellectual pride, very often makes bad karma for himself. His constant mistreatment of both his planet and the lower kingdoms on it, for instance. Sooner or later, that will return to him. In some future time, mankind will have to work out some form of compensation for every wrong done, for every hurt inflicted for every foolish act he has perpetrated in his past, no matter what the reason. We said before, nobody ever gets anything for nothing in nature's law. We may rest assured that whatever hardships we are suffering, whatever physical, mental or emotional difficulties we encounter, or, conversely, whatever success or happiness we enjoy in our lives, then there is a reason or a cause underlying it. That reason or cause may lie in the far distant past, or it may have happened yesterday afternoon. But a cause there is. For in all the universe there is only law, and nothing happens without a cause. If our present lot is not a happy one, then we can be sure 
that it is so because of something somewhere in ourselves, in the past recesses of our minds. But contrary to the idea of the fatalists, we do not have to lay down and accept these conditions, whatever the cause. We may, at any time, by aspiring to a higher understanding, by attaining to a greater degree of self-mastery, interrupt this chain of cause and effect. Can, in fact, turn our present unfortunate effects into new causes. It will bring us better karma in the future. A man might become blind in his physical life. Could be result of a so-called accident or the result of some former neglect or error of judgment. Be that as he may, he has different courses open to him. He may sit down and bemoan his fate, weep and wail, and make his own and other people's lives a misery. Thus, creating further bad karma for his future. Or he could accept the misfortune quietly, philosophically, and in the absence of outer vision, begin to develop his inner sight and awareness, thus opening up for himself new and glorious worlds of deeper inner perception, perhaps finally attaining to greater heights of understanding than would ever have been possible with the distraction of normal eyesight. And in this way, with his newfound strength and wisdom, he could become a center, a source of encouragement and healing to many less afflicted. And so, he would be making a wonderful karma for his future lives. Cause and effect, though, is not just confined to events. It's also very much concerned with states, for example, a man who cannot read, cannot live in the make-believe world of those who can. He may never in this lifetime be able to enjoy the thrill of losing himself for a time in some romance or adventure. And because of this lack, he might spend most of his time indulging in pursuits of a lower nature. And thus he might, through all his life, restrict himself to that lower order. If, on the other hand, he took the trouble to learn to read, then he would open up wonderful new fields of endeavor for himself. His whole life could be changed. All it would need would be the decision and the determination not to accept the situation, but to change it. Such conditions as this actually do exist in and around the lower realms of the astral world. There are many souls living there who have not developed anything more than the lower desires. And their chief interest lies 
and trying to keep in touch with their old earthly haunts and companions and pursuits. They have no interest in higher things of any sort. Very often the pool of material life is so strong that such souls seek reincarnation very quickly so that they may once again take up the old round of so-called pleasures again at the earliest possible moment. And in this way, like our man who couldn't read, they become chained to the lower realms, perhaps for many lifetimes, dividing their time between earthly and astral bodies. The progress into higher states of understanding is temporarily halted. They appear to be quite happy at that stage, but before too long, they must become discontented with their limited existence and long for something better. When that happens, they bitterly regret the time that they have wasted. This is the law of cause and effect at work. Their lack of determination, will, if you like, is the cause. And their eventual unhappiness is the effect. Throughout all creation, this great law is at work. Continually ensuring that balance and harmony and rhythm and justice are maintained in the universe. This is, in fact, the judgment of the theologians. This is the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But it's far more exact, infinitely more just. Here there's no question of mercy or forgiveness, of revenge, reward or punishment in any way whatsoever. There is only the law. Sooner or later, you see, in any system which is administered by man, however advanced, there must come a time when emotion overturns reason. When, either in the name of mercy or revenge, someone will escape the consequences of their act or be far too harshly treated. This must happen sooner or later. The idea of mercy and forgiveness is very wonderful as far as we personally are concerned. It is a necessary part of our spiritual growth that we should learn to be merciful, to forgive those who have transgressed against us. Human sympathy and love are the keys to heaven. No one denies that for a moment. But that has nothing to do with justice. If a fire should burn the finger of a man on Wednesday, one should leave untouched the finger of a child on Thursday, just because it is a child and not a man, then that would be injustice. If such things could happen in nature, the result would eventually be complete and utter chaos. But of course they cannot happen. 
only in the worlds of men can there be emotional, personal judgments, decisions made as to who shall be punished and who shall be rewarded. These are human traits with which, incidentally, religion has endowed God. As an illustration of this, perhaps a, a rather amusing one, try to imagine a world in which all the inhabitants, instead of having bodies like ours, had bodies which were either cubes or spheres. The law there would be that the better the person was, the rounder or more spherical the body would be, and the worse the person, the more angular or cube-shaped. Now, these spherical or cube-shaped people, at the end of their lives, would have to leave their world, and they would have to leave it through one of two doors. One door would be square, and the other one circular. And the conditions behind these two doors would be quite different. Conditions in the world behind the square door, for instance, would be very bad, very unhappy, indeed, terrible. The conditions behind the round door would be quite the opposite, wonderful conditions, a sort of heaven-like state. Every person, obviously, passing out through one of these doors would want to go through the round one. Whatever their shape. And then wouldn't exactly be possible because a lot of those people would have square bodies. If you've ever tried to push a three-inch square through a three-inch diameter round hole, you'll know that it's quite impossible. So, our cube-shaped people have only one way to go. Through the square door. They can pray as much as they like. They can weep and they can wail. They can repent and they can promise to be good. But the fact remains, they are cube-shaped, and there isn't any other way they can go but through the square door. They can go through that door, and as soon as they wish, they can come back out again. And in this world of causes, they can make an attempt to change their shape. They can by their own efforts, try to knock the corners off. And sooner or later, they'll become spherical enough to get through the round door. But in such a system, you see, there isn't anyone standing by the doors. There's no one who could take pity on one of them and let him in through the side door. Such a thing might be sentimentally satisfying. 
but it would be an outrageous injustice. An entry into the worlds beyond this earth of the death of the physical body is also via a series of doors. These doors are made of vibrationary states of desire. There are a, an infinite number of shapes between a square and a sphere. And the law is quite clear. A soul passing into that world may enter through any door up to and including his own shape. But there isn't any power in all the universe that will get it through a door which is smaller or rounder than his own present self-imposed shape. Such is the law of karma. And in the idea of being able to come back and try to modify our shape so that we may later on be able to enter through a rounder door, in that we see reincarnation the two, karma and reincarnation, are completely tied together. Without reincarnation, without the opportunity to try again, the law of karma could never be fulfilled. And without the law of karma, reincarnation wouldn't be necessary. There is another idea which is often associated with this law of karma or consequence. I think we should have a word about that. It's the doctrine of the transmigration of souls, which has sprung from a complete misunderstanding of the teachings of the Buddha. As we have it today, this degrading idea says that a soul which has retrogressed through lives of sinful activity may eventually be reborn into the body of an animal. There is no possible way in the scheme of human evolution that such a thing could happen. Man is only man because he has awakened within himself the fifth principle, intellectual mind. Once he has unfolded that principle, however animal-like he may be, he is man, and he cannot. Whatever the circumstances, go back to being an animal any more than a child, having once learned to read, can go back to being completely illiterate. This doctrine of the transmigration of souls arose because of a misunderstanding. All religions at one time or another have grown out of the ancient wisdom teachings. And according to those teachings, one can see that a soul which wished to cling to its old depraved habits would, on reincarnating, choose to be born into circumstances 
which would afford it the opportunities to gratify its base desires. And as it indulged more and more its animal nature, so the bodies would begin to take on more and more animal characteristics. That is fact. The outward appearances would certainly be of an animal nature. But however depraved, however low it might sink, the thinker, the soul, is still a man. And having joined the stream of human evolution, must one day drag itself from the slime of its own depravity and begin the long, long climb upward to the stars and beyond. Where at last it will come into its rightful home. Every step of that journey, passing as it does through thousands of lifetimes, thousands of personalities, must be a personal effort. And is the sole responsibility of the thinker himself. Help, loving help and guidance in plenty, will always be at hand. The one guiding star, which will lead us home eventually, is karma. The law of destiny, the fulfillment of which is at one with God. Peace be upon you now.